with me to uh, Psalm 103 will be the first place that we turn to today. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14 will be our opening scripture. Several years ago in the mail, I received an envelope, uh, opened it up, and there was a photograph inside. It was a photo taken uh, from an airplane that did an aerial uh, picture of our church property. And it was really neat to look at, to be able to see um, how everything fit in perspective uh, from the parking lot to the buildings to uh, the picnic shelter and everything behind the church. All the property uh, was in this photo. And while there was uh, a lot to see all at once, there was, there was very little detail as far as down to scale. And in some ways, I think that's what this sermon is going to be today on the topic of grace. In reality, the entire Bible is about grace. And we could be here all day and for many days to come if we were to exhaust everything the Bible had to say about grace. We could do an extremely long sermon series on the topic of grace, but yet here we are uh, with one message in which to, uh, to look at this. It's hard for one single sermon to do adequate justice to the subject of God's grace. But yet it is a very crucial doctrine. It's a crucial doctrine for us today, and it was recognized as such during the Protestant Reformation. We are celebrating this year the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation that began in Europe as Martin Luther as we have looked at before, nailed the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany, and what began on that occasion and how God used that to bring about a sweeping reform of the church, and we are today the recipients of that Reformation. Grace alone, as the Reformers sought to, to work and bring about change in the church and the doctrine and the practice of the church in that day, grace alone was one of the primary issues. In Latin, sola gratia, sola gratia, ever how it is pronounced, uh, grace alone was of vital importance. For today, uh, I hope that we can open the Bible and let God speak to us and then through His Word humbly acknowledge that your life and your eternal destiny lie solely in God's hands, that the course of your life here on earth and your eternal destiny, all of this lies solely in the hands of God who created you and God who demonstrates His vast love for you. Let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning as we begin looking at Psalm 103, starting at verse 8. And here David writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we approach you at this time in prayer solely by your grace, through your invitation. You are inviting us to come before you, the creator of the universe, the one who provides for us and sustains us by the word of your power, the one who lovingly sacrificed his only begotten son for us. It is by your grace, your grace alone, that we approach your throne at this time. Father, I pray that as we open the word today, Lord, you would open our minds to understand it and you would open our hearts to embrace it that we might be transformed, that we might live out the truth herein contained. Father, help us by your grace to have a better understanding of your grace and how that impacts our life here on earth and our life in eternity. Father, speak to us through your word. Touch hearts. Draw lost sinners to you for salvation. And that is done only by your grace. Father, thank you for this opportunity you have provided for us. We pray your will be done as we open your word and we pray you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we are in this sermon series looking back and remembering the Reformation and how it impacts us even still today, we have seen that scholars have brought together five Latin statements, five solas, to summarize what the Protestant Reformation was truly about. Last week we opened up with Scripture alone in Latin, sola scriptura. And this lays the foundation for everything that is to follow. It is, it is through Scripture alone that we come to know God. It is through Scripture alone that we learn about our sin. It is through Scripture alone that we learn the Gospel. It is, it is Scripture alone that is the authority on matters of faith and practice because God's Word has the final say in everything it seeks to say. And from this foundation of Scripture alone, we begin to learn about God. And one of the first things that, that jumps out at us through the pages of Scripture is God's grace, the grace of God. Now, most have heard the term grace before, and most would say, I believe in God's grace. But what exactly is grace? What is a working definition for us? And Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, defines it simply as this. Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. So two things in this. Grace is God's goodness and His goodness is evidenced towards those who deserve only punishment. Therefore, grace is God's goodness that is undeserved. That is what grace is. And so with that in mind, that 
let's go to the Word of God here and see where we find grace and what that means. Now, first of all, I think we need to understand grace is extended by God in the Old Testament. Grace is extended. One of the common mistakes that people have about the Bible is that God in the Old Testament was the God of the law. And in the New Testament, God is the God of grace. That is a common mistake, but when we truly look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God is in both Testaments. Throughout all of Scripture, He is a God of judgment and grace. He is a God of judgment in the New Testament. As we read in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira sinned against God, and God judged them. We read King Herod sinned against God, and God judged him in Acts chapter 12. We read about the second coming of Christ, and as we looked at in 2 Thessalonians, he's coming with fire and judgment. God is a God of judgment in the New Testament, as well as a God of grace. But in the Old Testament, we see he's a God of law and justice, but he's also a God of grace. We see it in the book of Genesis. We see God's loving favor. His loving favor. In Genesis chapter 6, we read about God's love for Noah. It says, Noah found favor in the sight of God. That's grace. That even though as all people are sinners in the eyes of a holy God, that God chooses to, to bestow His favor on lost sinners. And God found God saw Noah, and Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Even, even the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham was a pagan worshiping other gods, and God spoke to him, and God called him, and God commanded him to leave his family and leave his land and journey to, journey to the promised land, journey to the land that God was to show him. And that was only by God's grace. We see God's character. It's part of His character. God's loving favor. And we see grace in the Old Testament here in the, the law, the five books of Moses. We also see it in the Psalms and the prophets. Grace is all over the Old Testament. It's, again, God's character. And in the passage we read at the beginning in Psalm 103, we see God's loving forgiveness. His loving forgiveness. God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins. Remember grace is goodness where punishment is deserved? God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. It's infinite. He's compassionate he is patient. That is his character. That's who he is. We also read in the Old Testament God's loving fellowship. His loving fellowship. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, God reminds Israel of his relationship with them. And he says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, and that is by grace, descendant of Abraham, my friend. My friend, even though God is high above man, God chooses by His grace loving fellowship to the point where He referred to Abraham as His friend. 
Abraham, the friend of God. And that even though through our sin we are enemies of God, God chooses by His grace to draw us into relationship with Himself and enter into this covenant of grace with us. God's loving fellowship, but also God's loving faithfulness. In Exodus 34, 6, read about Moses' encounter with the Lord. It says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, uh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness. In Hebrew, the word hesed. In the New Testament, the, uh, the parallel to that is grace. In the Old Testament, hesed, it's God's covenant love, His, His faithful love, that God has entered into this relationship with His people, and God, based on His character, will not, will not turn His back on His people his faithfulness. Even though His people continually rebel and turn against Him, God remains faithful. And that is seen all through the pages of the Old Testament. Time and time again, we see Old Testament saint, be it Abraham or Jacob or David. And we see individuals who, who sin against God and then God graciously forgiving them and drawing them back to Himself. God's covenantal love is faithful. Some have even gone so far as to, to make the assumption that the God of the Old Testament focused on judgment so much, and the God of the New Testament focuses on grace and forgiveness so much that, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. Throughout history, some have made that accusation. Several years ago on a mission trip down in Bell County, I encountered a, an individual on his front porch as we were going door-to-door -door inviting people to a local church. And this gentleman uh, apparently had studied the Bible quite a bit and had a, a working knowledge of Scripture, but yet he, he tried to argue that point with me. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different gods. And I said, really, how so? And he said, the God of the Old Testament, he was always punishing people, and he was always showing his wrath and his anger, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and forgiveness. Those two things don't reconcile. And I said, really, how, where do we see God judging people in the Old Testament? He said, ah, you know, in the flood, God, God punished the whole earth in his wrath and his vengeance. He was angry. I said, yes, but he spared Noah and his wife and their families. He said, yeah, okay. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? God just rained down fire and brimstone on them sinners. I said, yeah, but God in His grace sent an angel and drug Lot and his family out. God got him out of Dodge. I said, in fact, every time you see God's judgment in Scripture, you always see God's grace. God judged Adam and Eve for their sin in the garden and God drove them out of the garden Yet God provided for them a covering of skins more sufficient than fig leaves. God drove them out from the tree of life so that they would not eat and stay in that sinful condition permanently. 
God sent them out with a gracious promise that a Messiah would one day come and crush the head of the serpent. Every time you see justice, you see grace. Look no further than the cross. We'll see that here in just a moment. God's justice raining down on Jesus, absorbing our sin debt. But yet God's grace providing forgiveness for us. Grace is extended in the Old Testament. But then grace is explained in the New Testament. Grace is explained in the New Testament. The book of Romans is really the definitive place to turn for a full understanding of, of the grace of God and what the grace of God truly is. And we, we see what we can call the doctrines of grace jump out at us from the pages of the New Testament, especially in the book of Romans. We learn, first of all, what grace is and why it's important because of the sinner's inability. The sinner's inability to turn towards God. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Also in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we learn in the New Testament that man is incapable of turning towards God because of our sin. And so we are wholly dependent on the grace of God to draw us to himself. We see the sinner's inability, but we also see the sovereign's initiative that the Father God in His initiative extends grace towards us even though we do not seek Him. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. Justified, being declared right in the sight of God, is a gift by His grace. And how does that gift come to us? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, one who absorbs the wrath of God. In his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at this present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grace of God. There is the judgment of God against sin on the cross. God in His justice and holiness cannot sweep away sin under the rug. Let's just pretend that never happened. It's okay by me. That's fine. I'll I'll just forget it happened. No, God must punish sin or He's not good. So He punishes sin, but He does it on the cross as as a favor to us. He punishes Christ who is holy and sinless so that we who are sinners can be forgiven and declared just. Even though we are sinners by nature, God declares us just through the death of Jesus in our place. The sovereign's initiative was to save us from our sins, even though we didn't deserve it. We see also not only the Father involved in our salvation, but all three members of the Trinity, we see the Son's investment his investment in us by His grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His death was in our place. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Christ died in our place. The atonement that we needed was through the cross. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of God, Christ, came to die in your place. Even though you did not deserve it, folks, that is grace. The Son of God extended grace to you by dying for you. We also see the Spirit's indwelling. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Through the Father's plan and through the Son's crucifixion, we see the Holy Spirit applying this to us and to our lives. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul keeps repeating that. The Spirit in you. The Spirit in you. The Spirit dwelling, living, abiding, remaining, staying 
in you, the Spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict you of sin, to draw you to Christ, and then to seal your salvation. Secure forever through the gracious work of God. The Father's plan of salvation, the Son's crucifixion, and then the Spirit's application of that to you in your life, in your heart. You are sealed by the Spirit in His indwelling forever. And then through this, we see finally the saints' inclusion. The saints' inclusion. Even though we did not deserve this, but by God's grace, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Why sons? For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so we also may be glorified with him. God moves you from a sinner to a child of his. How does God do that? How can God legally do that without violating his own holiness, his own righteousness? He does that through the cross of Jesus Christ. That Christ, as your substitute, died in your place so that you could be declared right with God. You become a saint. You become holy and sanctified and set apart by God by the work of the sovereign God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's so amazing, you don't deserve a lick of it. None of us do. We deserve wrath and condemnation. But God in His grace saves us. You know, when I was in school, when we'd have to read books, sometimes I was lazy, didn't want to read the book, and so you want to know what the book's all about, you turn to something called Cliff's Notes. Some of y'all chuckling, you know what I'm talking about. Find a little, the little booklet, Cliff's Notes, and it, it gives you a brief synopsis of the entire book, so that way you don't have to read the whole book. You know what it's all about through your Cliff's Notes. When it comes to the subject of grace, we have a summary of it. Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Everything we talked about in the role of the Trinity, saving us by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Listen to these familiar themes that we've been pulling together from Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, speaking of Christ, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. 
with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens, things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that He, that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Grace extended in the Old Testament. Grace explained in the New Testament. But finally, grace is experienced in the new person. In the new person. Because see, this is not just some sort, of, some sort of impractical doctrine that theologians wrestle with and define. This is real life stuff. This is your life on earth. This is your life for all eternity, heaven or hell. This is, it all hinges on God's grace and your experience or lack thereof of the grace of God, the new person. As Ephesians talks about being saved, being, becoming a, a new person, the new man, a, a new creation, Paul says in 2 Corinthians so how does this come about, this experience of grace? First of all, your salvation is by grace. Your salvation is by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself is the gift of God. The grace of God is a gift. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works not saved by good works but we're saved for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them even our good works that flow from us only by grace that's the song that Jennifer sang a while ago just said it's by his grace that anything good that I have done is only by his grace it begins with our salvation. Your salvation is by grace. Your substitution was by grace. As we just said, Christ was the substitutionary atonement in your place. And that was by God's grace. His grace alone. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. Wow. What a statement. If you are saved in any other way than the cross of Jesus Christ, then the cross of Jesus Christ was needless. It was in vain. If you could be saved by your good works, if you could be saved by your own merit, if you can add anything to the cross of Jesus Christ, then the cross was insufficient. What a statement. Paul says, been crucified with Christ. Righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So your substitution was by grace. Your, your sanctification is by grace. Sanctification, the process through which God transforms you and molds you into the image of His Son, God working in your life. And this is where we're getting to the, the, the real life application of this stuff. Okay, I've been saved by God's grace. Jesus was my substitute by grace. Now I'm trying to live out a life that pleases God. How do I do that? It's only by God's grace. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 and verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Or some translations, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? For, for, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. One of the arguments that some have had during the day of the Reformers, and some even have even today, that when you focus so much on God's grace, it gives you a license to sin. If, 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 if God saved me by His grace and my eternal destiny is, is secured by His grace, then, then I can live any way I so choose to live because I'm under grace now. And Paul shoots that down sufficiently by saying this, Shall we continue to sin so that grace will increase? God forbid. You're no longer under the law. You're now under grace. Live like it. That's why Romans 6 and 7 show us that we are to live like we are under grace. That means we strive for holiness and sanctification. We don't have a license to sin. We, we've been freed from sin. Therefore, we are to live like those who are no longer under sin. And the only way you can do that is by God's grace because you'll find yourself falling and stumbling. And at the end of Romans 7, Paul says the exact same thing. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. He's the one who achieves our victory for us and applies that. Your sanctification is by grace. Finally, your selection is by grace. Selection. Now, not only dealing with your salvation, of course, we've seen that clearly. It's by grace but your selection for service, for ministry, is by, by grace. Paul recognized that in, in Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8, speaking of the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. 
say, well, that's good, preacher. I'm not a preacher. Chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift to serve and to accomplish God's will here on earth. To serve God's people. To serve those around you whom God has placed in your sphere of influence. God has gifted you to minister and to serve them. And that giftedness is only by His grace. God has equipped you to do something in this church. To serve these people in these pews around you. He has gifted you to serve them. If you are doing anything to to serve and and to minister to this church, it is only by grace, whether it is preaching, or whether it is through serving, through encouraging, through giving. Whatever your giftedness is, it's by God's grace. And by the way, if God has equipped you to serve in this church and you're not serving in this church, you are in essence spitting on God's gift. The Holy Spirit, according to each one of us, grace is given. And you're saying, okay, God, thank you for this gift, but no thanks. How ungrateful we are being in choosing not to use His giftedness for service. It's by His grace. Grace is experienced in the new person. Your salvation, your substitution, your sanctification, your selection, it is all by the grace of God. This past couple of weeks, Howard and Nancy have been traveling out west I called them one day and they were at the Grand Canyon. And they were explaining the beauty of what they were seeing there. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. I was just relying on their words to explain to me the magnificence of that. A couple of days ago, I had the opportunity on a field trip with Logan and his school to go to the Creation Museum and saw this beautiful picture of the Grand Canyon. It was all lit up and and it was just magnificent just to be able to see that. But, you know, hearing a person's explanation of it and even seeing a picture of it are no substitutes for truly seeing it for yourself and experiencing it for yourself. It's not the same. It's difficult to adequately describe God's grace. No matter how many words are used, no matter how much you see it in someone else in their life, the grace of God must be experienced personally. If you say, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand this grace thing. I, it sounds good. And it sounds amazing. And we sing amazing grace. And, and I see others and the way they live and it, it impresses me. But I don't quite understand it. God in His grace today he is opening your eyes to this truth. He's opening your ears to hear these words. I pray He's opening your heart that you might come to experience that grace yourself. It's one thing to hear someone preach about it. It's another thing to experience it, embrace it, and live it, and love it. It's an experience that no words can do justice.
you must come to understand it for yourself. How do you do that? You humbly acknowledge that your life here on earth and your eternal destiny in the life that is to come, they lie solely in God's hands. So the issue for the reformers and the issue for us today is this. You are saved by His mercy, not your merits. You are saved by His mercy and not your merits. You don't don't earn your salvation. You don't add anything to your salvation. It's not, well, there's grace, but then there's also my inherent goodness. Because Paul says there's none who seek God. No, not one. We're unable to seek God. It's not His grace plus whatever the, the church attributes to me. It is grace and grace alone. If there is anything else that you can add to the grace of God, then His grace is somehow insufficient. You've got to humbly acknowledge that you are dependent solely on the free gift of God, His goodness towards you in Christ Jesus, even though you deserve only punishment. That's grace. That's why it matters. That's why you need it. Let's pray today. Father, we humbly come before you again acknowledging our